Hello, everyone. Welcome to church. Um, we are still doing online sermons, and that's not ideal. Uh, my heart yearns to see everyone and to be together again as a community, as a gathered community in the church, hugging one another, connecting with one another. But uh, at this stage of the game, this is the best we can do. So um, welcome. Uh, if you've been uh, attending our church or if you've been online for, for quite a while, you know that we've been walking through the Old Testament. And um, if you can recall, way back at the beginning, we talked about how the, the key to understanding the Bible, the key certainly to understanding the Old Testament, um, lies in a promise. And it's a promise that was given way back in Genesis 12, and it was a promise given to a man named Abraham. And the promise is twofold. The first part of the promise is, is God says to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Okay? But the second part of the promise is that through this nation, all the surrounding nations of the world would be blessed. And as you journey through the Old Testament, and you'll discover how this promise plays out. Um, in fact, how this promise at times unravels. Uh, we discover that God's people, rather than than uh, living out the promise and being uh, a light to the nations rather than the, uh, the people of God affecting the surrounding nations, they become infected by the idolatrous practices of the surrounding nations. And uh, this really does a number on Israel. In fact, by the time we get to our passages that we're going to be looking at uh, today, uh, God's people, the nation, had been split into two, into the north and into the south. The north, the nation was called Israel. The south, the nation was called uh, Judah. And uh, there's an intense civil war. The, the, the nation is split. And uh, then there's a series of kings that come on the scene. And their stories are, are captured in, in uh, two books, well, at least two books in the Bible, uh, two that are aptly named First and Second Kings. And they actually walk through the, the, the different kings and describes what they were like. And and just, just as a way to understand First and Second Kings, and maybe this will help you in your own reading, whenever you look at the kings in the north, they're all bad. Every single one of them. They are an absolute mess. And uh, king after king comes on the scene, and each one's worse than the one before. And, and just when you think things couldn't get any worse, along comes this king, fellow named King Ahab, and man, he's, he's the worst of the lot. And uh, we were introduced to him in 1 Kings chapter 16. And you can follow along if you have a Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 16, in verse 30, it introduces King Ahab. It says this, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, uh, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of um, Ethbaal, king of the of the. Uh, Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. I mean, that's pretty, pretty ridiculous. Now, part of the problem is that Ahab, I mean, he, he marries this, well, she's, she's quite the character, um, this woman named Jezebel. And she becomes infamous for her hatred of God and his prophets. Uh, in fact, she sets out to, um, to introduce, systematically to introduce Baal worship within the land. 
And she also sets out to systematically murder all of God's prophets, which is a bit unusual. I mean, up until now, you had Israel saying, at least giving lip service to, to worshiping Yahweh, but also flirting with, with um, idolatry. Not Jezebel. She just wants to wipe out all worship of Yahweh, of the true God, and introduce her non-gods, Baal, uh, into the equation. And so this is the situation in the north, and it's about as dark as it's going to get. And on, on people's minds at the time, and I think it's a question on a lot of people's minds today, is uh, this question, is God going to act? What will he do in the face of such darkness? And so one of the passages that uh, I think we uh, want to kind of zone in on is... Um, is this passage found in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 where we're introduced to a prophet, a remarkable prophet, a fellow named Elijah. And so this is the passage we're going to look at. We're going to look at a number of passages in the story of Elijah. But for this one, let's stand out of honor of God's word. Let's stand and uh, we will look at this passage together. And I sure hope you're standing. Um, here we go. First, uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to uh, Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, to, through the story of, of your servant Elijah, and uh, speak your word into our hearts and bring connecting points to our own life to this story. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so we are introduced to Elijah, the servant of God. And Elijah, he squares off. One of his jobs is to square off against Ahab. And he announces that a drought is going to come, and it's a judgment on Ahab. Now, the interesting question, I think, to ask is, why does God use a drought as judgment? I mean, there's lots of different uh, things he could have done. Why use a drought as a judgment? And I think it's interesting because, remember, um, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, she's introducing the worship of Baal. Now, Baal, among other things, was said to have authority over what? Over the weather. Over rain. And so God says he's judging the land by introducing a drought, saying there's no rain. And right away, you see there's a showdown happening. It's like, who is the real God here? Is it Baal, supposedly? Lord of the rain? <laughs> or is it Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth? And uh, we begin to get an answer to this right away with two things that happen. One is that um, uh, Elijah, he's uh, provided food and water in a time where there's little water or food. And then secondly, through uh, Elijah's encounter with this old widow. And um, one of the things that we see happening right at this time, it's, it's fascinating, is God calls Elijah and he sends Elijah into the land of Sidon. Now, why is that important? Well, that's Jezebel's home turf. 
I mean, if, if, of, if all the places where, you know, Yahweh, there's no Yahweh worship, there's complete worship of Baal, it's in the land of Sidon. That's, that's Jezebel's home. That's where she set up residence. And um, what does God do? He says to Elijah, go into the land of Sidon, into the thoroughly pagan land, and we will discuss to see who, which God is going to come out on top. And so take a look in 1 Kings chapter 17. In verse 7, sometime later the brook dried because there's no rain in the land. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, right? And stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her. He said, he said would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he says, oh, and bring me please a piece of bread. And as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain in the land. Interesting story. Um, the key words in this whole story are, there are two words, but first. Um, Elijah says to the woman, he says, you know, can you get me some water? She says, okay, I'll get you some water. He says, can you get me some food? And she's like... I have no food. I got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm going to make a little bit of something for me and my son. And then we're just going to die. And uh, Elijah says, all right, well, but before you make that, he goes, but first, make something for me. I mean, that's, that's a big thing to say. But first, make something for me. And I, I can imagine the, 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 uh, the old widow thinking to herself, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'd prefer if God would go first. You know, God, you go first, you know, supply the jars, and then I'll make, well, hey, I'll make a three-course meal for you, Elijah. But the bigger question that's being asked in this encounter, I think it's a really important question. And as God is asking this question, will you trust me now with what you have? I think this is a big challenge. I mean, if, if, if I won't trust God now, with what I have, would I even trust him if I have more? Do I really trust God? Or am I holding on with clenched fists to everything that I have? Now, big question in our times today, am I holding on to everything that I have with clenched fists uh, given these unprecedented times? See, one of the, one of the lessons, this is probably the first lesson that God ever, ever taught me is this, is that you can't outgive them. Now, it's not a quid pro quo, you give to God, he's going to give back. It doesn't work that way, but it's, it's the recognition that God is the Lord of heaven and earth, and you cannot outgive him. It's living out uh, Jesus' words in Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what does a widow do? Well, she takes the flour and the oil, all she has left, and she, pray, she prepares a meal for the man she had just met. 
Now, again, if I were the widow, I would have made a really small, small piece of bread for Elijah, maybe a cracker. Um, but no, she, 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 makes, she makes a cake of bread. And, uh, and then she fully expects that she and her son are going to die. And Elijah says, go look in the jar. And she looks, and they're full. And they have enough to eat that day and the next day and the day after. And in all this, again, it, the, what's the showdown? The showdown is Baal's not the provider, but God is. Now, shortly after this, tragedy strikes. The widow's son becomes ill and dies. But again, look what happens. Elijah goes up, takes the son, uh, prays, and the son uh, comes to life again. Now, it's really interesting because in the Canaanite religion, again, you have Baal, who's a, who's a god of fertility. The only god that Baal would be subject to within the Canaanite uh, pantheon it would be these, this god named Mot, which is a god of life and death. And again, what's going on here? It's just pictures like Baal's not God. Mot is not God. God is, he's, he's not the, the god of life and death. Yahweh is the God who's over life and death. Again, this is really important to see. Which brings us to the ultimate showdown uh, that takes place in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. Some of you may be familiar with uh, this story. It's told quite often. And after several years of drought, God tells Elijah, he goes, go confront uh, Ahab. And so Elijah sees Ahab and, and says, you know, and Ahab sees Elijah and he says, oh, you're a big troublemaker. And Elijah said, no, I'm not the troublemaker. You're the troublemaker. And then the, and basically he says, all right, this battle ends here and now. And in, verse, um, in chapter 18, verse 16, we read this. It says this. Um, he says, uh, on verse 18, he goes, I have not made trouble for Israel, said Elijah, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Interesting. So here you have this, uh, the scene is set for the showdown. On one hand, uh, I mean, you get all the people of Israel gathering to, to, to witness this. And on one side, you get the 450 prophets of Baal. And with them, you have the king. And with them, you have the government. And with them, you got the army. You got all, interesting, no, no Jezebel, she's not there. But you get all this on one side. And on the other side stands one man. One solitary prophet who confronts a king, who confronts all the prophets of Baal. But with that one man is Israel's God. The God who made them a people. And I think it's a reminder that there's times where you and I, um, and it's going to be very difficult, but we need to stand up against what is wrong. And there may be times when we do that, it's, it's, we're, all, we're all alone. To stand against the tide is not an easy thing to do. To go against the flow will single you out. I mean, again, you may stand up and all the government, all society, all of Facebook, all of, all of social media may be against you. And to stand up is not easy. And here we are at Mount Carmel. The odds are 450 to 1. Or in reality, it's 450 to 2. Because Elijah does not stand alone. 
God is with him. And in an act of immense courage, Elijah challenges the whole nation. And it's interesting, he says to the people, he says, how long are you guys going to waver between Baal and Yahweh? But it's interesting, the actual word that's used, we is translated as waver, the actual word means um, to limp or to hobble. And what Elijah is saying is, how long are you going to do this? You're going to align your life to a non-God? Your life is going to be one big limp. If you're going to align your life to, 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 to Baal, no wonder you're going to hobble through life. And I think the reality still stands today. When you and, whenever you and I align our lives to anyone other than Jesus, we limp, we stumble, we hobble our way through life. So Elijah asks the people, he says, who are you going to follow? Now here's the tragedy. The people say nothing. They say nothing. Dead silence. Well, it shows you the spiritual state of the land. Okay, so look at First uh, uh, Kings 18, verse 22. This is interesting. Again, some of you know the story. Elijah says to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put wood, but not set fire on it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire on it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I'll call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, well, he's God. And the people say, it sounds good. All right, let's do that. And so what happens is uh, the uh, prophets of Baal go first, and uh, they, you know, they, they set up the sacrifice, and then they start praying. Then they start praying. They start calling out uh, to Baal. Now, you have to realize, again, um, in the ancient world, Baal, the picture of Baal, he was often depicted as, as a god carrying a thunderbolt, uh, riding a chariot of, uh, uh, in, in a thunderstorm. I mean, he is, he's a god of the, of the thunderbolts. A little bit of fire should not be a hard job for Baal. Um, but nothing happens. And yeah, like Elijah, he, uh, he indulges in a little bit of prophetic trash talk at this point. And he says, you know, what's the matter with your God? Maybe you're not yelling loud enough. Maybe you need to, you know, maybe he's gone away. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe, you know, you've got to try a little bit harder. And, and they actually start trying a bit harder. They start, you know, chanting and screaming and ecstatic stuff, trying to call upon Baal, but nothing happens. You know the story, Elijah says, all right. Interesting, he says, it says, Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord, which again is a picture of how messed up things are spiritually for Israel at that time. He has to repair the altar. And then he uh, puts the sacrifice on it, puts water and more water and more water and more water. So it's just drenched and and notice what uh, Elijah does. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't chant. He doesn't jump up and down. He, he does a simple prayer. He says, God, hear, hear our prayer. And God hears his prayer. And it's interesting because sometimes, this is just an aside, sometimes as Christians we, we pray more like the prophets of Baal than we do like Elijah. Sometimes we think the louder we get and the more noise we make and the more you know, up and down we jump, and then, then God will finally hear what we have to say. Um, what this reminds us is that, uh, you know, God is a God. He hears us. He hears our prayer. You don't need to jump up and down and, and uh, rant and rave in order to get God's attention. And what happens in this passage is that God sees and he cares, and he answers, and, his, and fire comes down from heaven. And the people see this, and the people cry out, Oh, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And the prophets of Baal are defeated, and the nation returns to Yahweh. Now, 
it would be good at this stage to stop here. But there's one more part of the story that I just want to share with you. Because it's this next part of the story that actually serves as a bit of a warning to us. Because remember Jezebel? Well, Jezebel hears. She hears what happens. She hears that all her prophets of Baal have been killed. And, she, and she's not happy. <laughs> she's not happy. And she says to, to, to Elijah, she says, you know, you know what? If, if, if you're not in the same condition as, as my prophets are by tomorrow, <laughs> you know, it's going to happen. You're going to be, you're, you're a dead man. That's basically what she's saying. Now, I don't know if Elijah thought with the defeat of the Baal prophets that everything would be done and, you know, victory was, was accomplished. But uh, Elijah, he, he finds out he's a marked man. And what does he do? He runs for his life. He runs for his life. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think here's where the warning is. Sometimes, after a very intense spiritual mountaintop experience, such as what we saw at Mount Carmel, you and I can find ourselves in the valley pretty quick. Um, sometimes after very intense experiences with God, you and I can find ourselves in a time of deep doubt, fear, depression. You know, I, I see this happening a lot of times after a person is baptized. You know, everything's great, everything's wonderful, and then I see a lot of people sink into a lot of depression afterwards. They really struggle spiritually. And so the question today is not so much, will I ever be in the valley? Is that when I'm in the valley, what will I do? How will I respond when I'm there? Well, Elijah, he's depressed big time. And the same Elijah who prayed and the fire came down and and to consume the sacrifice, who prayed for rain and a drought ended, prays one more thing. He has one more prayer, and he says to God, God, let me die. Let me die. And thankfully, God sees and God cares, and he sends an angel to help him. And I like what uh, God does. He brings him food. He says, eat, drink. <laughs> he says, get some sleep. And that's important, to eat and drink and to sleep. Elijah wakes up, and he eats and he drinks, and he sleeps again. And then God directs him to Mount Horeb. But when Elijah gets there, what does he do? He hides in a cave. Now, I'm not a counselor, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing, the last place you want to go when you're feeling depressed, is a dark cave on the side of a mountain. I'm, I'm just guessing. And uh, we read this in, in, in chapter 19. Look at verse 9. It's really interesting. He went off into the cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. And God says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Interesting, this takes place on the, the Lord Mount Sinai basically, right? Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart 
and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the Lord said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death. I'm the only one left. The Lord says, go back. Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, and he gives them some tasks to do. And he says, you need to know there are still 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to, to Baal. You're not alone. And I think it's important for us to see this. Elijah is um, hiding in a cave, depressed, wishing he were dead. And my guess is that is where some of you are today. That you're stuck in a cave. You're in a dark cave emotionally, spiritually, for, for a number of reasons. Possibly because of this crisis. Possibly because you've been cooped up for too long or, or you've lost work or, or whatever it happens to be. But it's really done a number on you. And like Elijah, you're stuck. I get that. But here's where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the fact that God sees and God cares. And in this story, it's, it's, it's such a cool thing. God, he, he calls Elijah out of the cave and into the light. And in doing so, he, he, lets, he lets Elijah know the kind of God that he is. Yes, He's a God of the fire. Yes, he's a God of the thunder. Yes, he's a God of, of the spectacular. For sure, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. But he's also, he's also, he's also the God who speaks in a still, quiet voice. And if you listen, you can hear him. You see, Yahweh is reminding Elijah, and I think he's reminding us today, that he is always more than all we can think or imagine. And so he reminds Elijah, he says, take heart. Take heart. You're not alone. You think you're alone. You're not alone. There are still many, still many who follow me. And some of you may need to hear this today. Some of you, you're in a cave and, and you're feeling the weight of the world on your back. And, and, and a lot of you, like Elijah, you're like, man, I'm all alone. I'm all alone in this. And I, I've said this before, but one of the strategies of the evil one, I mean, he often overplays his hand, but one of the strategies of the evil one is to get you to the point where you think that you're the last Christian on earth. The strategy of the, of the evil one is, is to get you to the point where you think you're all alone, that nobody, nobody believes what you believe. He, the strategy of the evil one is to get you to the, to the point where you think you must be crazy to believe in Jesus Christ. You must be crazy to believe that, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. You must be crazy to think that to follow Jesus is where life is found. And when the evil one gets you to that point, he's got you. And here you got Elijah. He says, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. And what does God say? God says, come, come out of the cave. You're not alone. There's thousands. 
who have not bowed their knee to Baal. There are thousands that are still following me, and you and I need to know this. This is why friendship is so important. This is why fellowship is so important. This is why community is so important. This is why speaking in an empty room is so difficult. Because you and I were made for community. Because when we're in community, we support one another. We spur each other on. We remind each other that we're not crazy for following Jesus. See, God sees and he cares. And he desires to bring us out of the caves we find ourselves in. And if you allow him, he will bring you to a point of new beginning. And I think that's why we need the story of Scripture. Um, that's why the story of the Bible is so important. Because the promise, the promise that God gave to Abraham, the promise way back in Genesis 12 that's being um, woven throughout the pages of Scripture, this promise is ultimately fulfilled in the chosen seed of Abraham, in the true Israel, Jesus Christ, and his life, death, and resurrection. And when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? Something miraculous happens. We go from death to life. We go from hobbling our way through life, limping our way through life, to walking, and to keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, to being alive. We go from being alone to being with God, from being in a place of death, being brought into eternal life. You see, the story of the Bible is a story that God sees and God cares. And the question I want to ask you today is this. Do you believe this? And my invitation to you today is to, in quiet, listen for the still, small voice of Yahweh speaking to you. Telling you how much he loves you. Calling you to himself. Will you listen? Let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of the, of the mountaintop. Lord of the thunder and the lightning. Lord of the still small voice. Lord, we pray that you would draw us out of our caves, out of the heaviness that we've been experiencing, the suffocating loneliness that we've been experiencing, and bring us out and remind us that we are not alone. Help us to hear your voice. We create space right now to listen. Lord, your word teaches us. Your son, Jesus, invites us. And he says, come to me, all ye are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. And that is what we desire. And we pray, Lord, that we would create space to listen. Help us to listen to you. And as we listen to you, may we realize that we are being invited into something much bigger than we ever could have imagined. And so grant us courage to step out of our caves and, and, uh, and to walk with you 
with the purposes that you have for us so that we become the women and men that you have created and redeemed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.